and you're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. And I'm your host, Ramin Shah. Historically, access to celebrities was far removed and impersonal. Classy center magazines and billboards, fans were unable to interact with their favorite stars. Social media has fundamentally changed the interaction model. Talents increased its ability to leverage fandom into commercial opportunities, and fans have come to expect more and more personalization and engagement. Cameo has fundamentally changed the game. Started just three years ago, the company's raised over $50 million to facilitate personalized messages from celebrities to fans. In this episode, I chatted with founder and CEO, Stephen Galanis, and we touched on a number of topics, including how the internet has changed engagement, the network effects of building a fast-growing marketplace business, why Cameo's best position to compete against Instagram, Snapchat, and YouTube, and the responsibilities that come with a fast-growing B2C organization. Welcome, Stephen. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me. You know, Stephen, excited to have you on the show today and dive you know, pretty deeply into Cameo and how you're building an engine to deliver personalized messages from celebrities and influencers at scale. And uh, you just raised uh, a fresh $50 million round uh, earlier last, you know, late last year. Let's kick off with, you know, what Cameo is and how you founded the company. Sure. Uh, Cameo is a marketplace where people can book personalized video shout outs from over 20,000 different athletes, actors, and celebrities. Uh, our mission is to create the most personalized and authentic fan connections on earth. And uh, today we've done over half a million of these uh, you know, cameo videos since we started in 2017. And the core problem you've talked about solving is you know, helping people monetize social in a way you know, that's brand positive, right? There's a number of folks that have massive social followings and are more engaged than ever with their following, but the distribution of economics on traditional platforms is incredibly skewed, right? On YouTube, the top 3% make, you know, 90, 95% of the ad revenue. Talk a little bit about the legacy model, you know, versus the model you guys are creating. Yeah, so I think as a marketplace business, right, there's really like two sides of the problem you have to solve. So I think you touched well on the side, the value prop for talent on the value prop for uh, the celebrities, right? Ultimately, uh, today, there are more famous people than there have ever been before. Every single day, there's a new viral video coming out on TikTok, on YouTube, some rapper, singers coming up on SoundCloud. Uh, as talent, you know, as these other platforms has, have, have basically democratized fame, right? You don't need to wait for a casting director to put you in a video any, in a movie anymore. Now you can just go on YouTube and start creating content. And, and drive a following as a musician, you don't have to get signed by a label anymore. Like you could be like Chance the Rapper and win Grammys with, you know, just by distributing your content without a label, you know, on SoundCloud. Like this is a really, really, this is interesting times because there's so much disruptive technology that's out there. And ultimately we believe that on aggregate, the pure amount of supply of celebrity or supply of talent is increasing, right? And not only is the supply increasing, the magnitude of fame is increasing. Today, people are more famous than they've ever been. Uh, we're both Dukies. And, you know, my best friend from Duke is Lance Thomas, who was a 10-year NBA veteran, played for the New York Knicks, four-year starter at Duke, national champion. 
he had 47,000 followers on Instagram when he was starting for the New York Knicks last year. Zion Williamson, at the same time, was a high school basketball player in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and he had 2.1 million followers before he played his first game at Duke, right? So people today are more famous than they've ever been. You think of one-hit wonders like Lil Nas X, right? Lil Nas X can come on, make, you know, the most viral song ever blew up basically because of a TikTok challenge. And now, you know, might have tens of millions of followers that aren't going to like disappear, right? Where, you know, the one hit wonder 10 years ago or five years ago, you know, is now working a cameo, like, you know, being a music talent acquisition person, right? So it's so interesting, um, you know, really how the dynamics of having more uh, supply in this market exists. You think of the Screen Actors Guild at any given time, 99.9% of the Screen Actors Guild is unemployed, right? And if Uber was a way to monetize the, you know, excess capacity of like cars that are out there and Airbnb helped your, you know, your vacation home or your house like monetize when you weren't there, like Cameo is really the marketplace for people's time and the most simple, you know, uh, manifestation of it. And it's, and it's helping solve a problem for talent that I think really crystallized with me when I saw this documentary called Broke. It was a 30 for 30 documentary about NFL players and how 80% of NFL players go broke within five years of playing their last game, right? That's a crazy, crazy statistic. Yeah. And the more Martin and I were, my co-founder, were learning about this problem. Uh, I remember Martin saw A-Rod speaking like, at UCLA at the beginning of the time we were thinking about Cameo and A-Rod got on stage and he said, for the average professional athlete, they will make 95% of their lifetime earnings before they're 28 years old. Like that's unbelievable, right? You know, you're a couple years behind me. So you're 30, you know, you're 30, 31. Imagine if like you've already made 96% of the money you, you're ever going to make. And like, now you have to budget to like everything that you made, like hold on for the rest of your life. Um, and unfortunately, like it's hard for people to do that when they didn't have, uh, you know, they weren't, they didn't have the education. They didn't have great people around them. You know, like for when you're working in the professional world, every single year you work, like you expect to make more money and like have more responsibility. But, you know, for these guys coming right out of high school or 19 year olds going to the NBA, it's like, you know, they've got all these people around them that don't know what they're doing that, you know, are forcing them to make, not forcing them, but like not helping them make great decisions. And that, that was a problem we were trying to solve on the fan side. There was this notion that celebrities were almost like behind a red velvet rope and, you know, on this, like, you know, on this like platform and, and they were like untouchable. Right. And when we were kids, it would have been unthinkable for like someone like Tom Cruise to do like a commercial because it was like, it was basically diluting his brand. Right. If, if he's in commercials or if he's in a television show, then, you know, you're not going to pay $10 to go see him in the movie theater when the next mission impossible movie comes out today, people like Will Smith, the highest paid actor in Hollywood or the rock, they're like making TikToks for free and they're on YouTube. And, and now fans expect this daily engagement, which that was never the case, right? Celebrities used to be people you read about in glossy magazines. 
Today, there are people that you expect to interact with every single day. You expect to go on Instagram and watch your favorite you know, athlete or singer or celebrity or influencers stories and like know what they're doing and buy what they're selling you. It's so that, you know, the, the same platforms that have enabled more people than ever to become famous. They've also raised the bar, I think, for like what a fan expects out of the people they admire. Yeah. I mean, the, the fundamental shift you're, you're talking about is really building on the back, you know, of video and personalized engagement taking off versus more, you know, traditional offline or generalized engagement. You've, you've said that selfies are really the new autograph. Talk about how Cameo fits into that analogy. Sure. Um, I think back to, you know, I'm a big baseball fan. And in 1998, the Chicago Cubs had this like dream season this was Kerry Wood and Sammy Sosa. Kerry Wood had rookie year, 20 strikeouts, and Sammy Sosa had 66 home runs. And, you know, we made the playoffs for the first time in a decade, only to get, I think, swept by your uh, Atlanta Braves, okay. if I remember correctly. <laughs> yep. But I remember that season, you know, I was probably in fourth grade, and I was going out to, after the game, waiting in the parking lot to get, like, Mark, uh, Mark Grace or Sammy Sosa or Kerry Wood to, like, sign something for me. And, like, those guys were too big time, but Benny Agbayani and Scott Service and Glenn Allen Hill, like, or Rod Beck would stop and sign every autograph. 20 years later, I should not remember any of those people's names, right? They're not, like, that famous. They're, like, relatively, like, forgettable people. But because they did something nice for me, like, I remember them forever. And those artifacts of, like, their, you know, moment of, like, uh, niceness, right, are, like, living in my bedroom in Glenview, Illinois somewhere. And Cameo today is basically the same thing, except that, like, moment of, you know, giving your fan this thing that they want is being shared on social. And now it's not just, you know, making one person happy or putting something on your wall that people only are going to see if they walk in. But, you know, if, if the jersey is, like, on, if the jersey that gets autographed is on your physical wall in your office, you know, the cameo is going on your digital wall. It's going on your timeline. It's going, you know, getting shared on your Instagram. It's getting tweeted out. And now all of your followers are basically the people walking into your office to admire that. So when they see somebody make a cameo, you know, you're happy as the person that bought it. The recipient's happy. And anyone that sees it that's friends with you, like thinks it's cool and, and happy as well. Just like when, you know, when you got that video for your wedding, you know, probably your whole, all your friends and family and cousins, yeah. everybody was freaking out. Yep. So what's been your account? So you have 20,000, you know, you have over 20,000 people on the marketplace. Yeah. What's been your counsel to talent to be successful on the platform? How should they think about, you know, pricing, you know, an average ticket of a transaction and, and speak a little bit too, because I didn't, um, I didn't candidly, you know, recognize it until I'd heard you talk about it, but just the, how large the economics end up being, if you think about it on a per minute right, or per second basis, right? Talk a little bit about that too, because I think that, you know, you can conceptually kind of talk about scale or how this can be impactful, right? Going back to your early piece of yeah. professional athletes make, you know, 95% of their, their income before 28. But this was a kind of, when you do the math on that piece, that was, that was actually pretty astounding to me. Yeah. So when we were starting off, the very first talent that we kind of had in our uh, Rolodex was Cassius Marsh, who was on the Seattle Seahawks at the time. Cash was making about a million dollars a year. And 
you know, when someone's making a million dollars a year and they're 23, 24 years old, they have more money than God. And, you know, and I remember talking, my co-founder Martin and I talking to Cassius and we were trying to figure out like what would be the right price. And we came up with this equation called earnings per minute. And it was basically take your salary, divide it by 2000 hours in a work year, 50, 40 hour weeks, divide by 60, and you would find out how much money you make per minute. If you're making a million dollars a year, you're making something like $6.25 per minute. So if you could charge, you know, 30 bucks, for example, and you could do two cameos per minute, you actually would have the opportunity to make something like 10x the amount of money per minute than you would playing in the NFL getting concussions, right? Um, And this was most Probably like the most famous example of this was when Andre Drummond of the Detroit Pistons joined. He was the first max salary NBA player to to join Cameo. He was making $25 million a year. And when you do that same math, 25 million divided by 2000 divided by 60, you make $208 per minute. So if he was charging $100 or $150 per minute, he was making the same amount of money per minute with us on Cameo as he is making max salary in the NBA. And so when you think about, you know, what you, you've talked about before, kind of when you think about the pricing piece, you know, you recommend talent sometimes in the early years to actually underprice a bit to build more virality. Talk a little bit more about kind of from a, there's a, there's a pricing element on one side and then there's the distribution strategy on the other side. Yeah, so first off, we uh, do not price the talent ourselves, right? Like we let the talent set their own price. The reason we do that is we never want a talent coming to us and saying, this isn't worth my time. If you set your own price, it is like literally by definition, work with your time. Yeah. So that doesn't mean that we will never set prices, but that was like kind of why we did that at the beginning. People ask about that all the time. The second uh, thing is we optimize for, we tell our talent to optimize for the amount of cameos they do not how much they charge. So you should think about what your fans can afford, not what your time is worth, if that makes sense, right? There are um, great examples of this. For example, uh, TikTokers like have a very young audience. The average TikTok user in the United States is between 10 and 19. Their disposable income is not that much, right? So if that that person's trying to charge $2,000, like literally nobody in their demographic will be able to book. If they charge zero, they'll get booked so much that they wouldn't be able to do it. So we always tell our, our, you know, our talent to try to find, um, you know, the happy medium, but between supply and demand, because if it's $0, this just becomes Instagram DM or Twitter DM where they're going to get so many that they're not going to be able to do any, but if it's infinity, right? Like, nobody can afford it. Um, And at this point, the other thing that's really interesting is talent are routinely now trying to, or customers rather, are looking at the talent on the platform and trying to find good deals relative to to each other, right? So a famous example in Chicago, Brian Urlacher and Lance Briggs were like the two stars of the last Bears team to go to the Super Bowl. They sat, you know, they were linebackers, you know, both made all pro multiple times both Hall of Fame caliber players. Brian Urlacher is $540. His jersey was 54. Lance Briggs is $55, right? His jersey number was 55. 
So if you're a Bears fan of a certain generation, you look at those two people, there is not like a tremendous difference between Brian Urlacher and Lance Briggs, but the price is you know, hugely different. So some so Lance Briggs is going to do much better on Cameo than Brian Urlacher. So you've raised, I alluded to it earlier, you guys have raised a boatload of money, $50 million on the backs of, you know, obviously being a much bigger business. There's, you know, of course, significant penetration potential in the core product, more talent, right? More slices. So talk about, talk a little bit about the macro vision, right, for Cameo and, and examples of ancillary use cases with, you know, this inbuilt network effect and, and real flywheel effect. So number one, uh, Cameo is the marketplace where for X amount of money, you can do Y activity with Z person. Like at scale, that's what we're building. So today we are building that equation uh, with one Y activity, the personalized video shout out. It's the only thing we offer today. And with 20,000 people, we believe there's 5 million people in the world today that could charge as talent on Cameo. So you start thinking about Bollywood or K-pop or telenovela stars in Latin America or soccer players in Europe, like all over the world, there are people. And then like hyper-local folks as well. Um, WBBM, like the local Chicago radio station was in here interviewing me today. And, you know, the person that was interviewing me is someone that my parents like, like admire and they like list, they never miss their, you know, their broadcast. Right. So, you know, and I think about my high school football coach is someone that, you know, for my community would have been like a really impactful person to hear for, um, you know, or priests or rabbis or religious leaders or, you know, cooks. Like there's just so many authors, there's podcast hosts, there's so many different verticals that we haven't even really started penetrating. But at scale, we want anyone with fans to be on Cameo. Um, as I mentioned, we think there's 5 million people in the world that could be on it. It's only one third of our one third of 1% of our total addressable market on the supply side has been realized. When you think of the demand side, someone like Snoop Dogg has 36 million followers and you know they haven't even done a thousand cameos yet, right? So our TAM would really be for any given talent on the platform, like how many followers do they have, right? So, you know, we believe we're in the top of the first inning, frankly, in, with this business. Um, it's a global business. We're selling bits not atoms, right? Our uh, supply does not need to be met with localized demand. 30% of our business is coming from abroad already today, mm. despite the fact that, you know, under 5% of our talent is abroad. You know, it's people in India and people in Australia and people in the UK and, you know, Japan and Korea and all over booking talent that they follow on Instagram or watch on YouTube or, you know, consume their videos on TikTok and they're booking those people. So for us, it's like, if we're already seeing these worldwide network effects, the next stage, obviously, for the business is let's go get the local talent as well and then cross all that. You know, when we were talking offline, you were talking about, you know, a major Bollywood star that recorded a video for your wedding. And, you know, here you are, you know, uh, an Indian growing up in Atlanta, right? There are people that are fans of Bollywood town. Although you think of the Indian diaspora, right? How many Indians are there in the U S or in, um, you know, the UK or Australia or South Africa, and they're all like still very tied to the you know, culture back home. So, you know, here you could bring Bollywood to Atlanta without having to go anywhere. Yep. How do you, so especially as you get more, you know, at scale, right, this moves, you know, from, you know, 
I'll say kind of fun and games to, to serious with, you know, serious implications and considerations, right? There's significant upside in social monetization, but there can be a lot of risk and downside as well. So you can have a situation where, um, you know, if there's a fake uh, bot or you have someone, um, I'm thinking, you know, you have an athlete or a celebrity kind of read like a coded message, right? With the intent to kind of destroy their career, right? That could have a huge latent effect downstream, I would imagine, in the talent space of people saying, hey, look, you know, there's upside if you go on Cameo, but there could be, you know, we're living in an age where one wrong statement can get you, you know, 10 sponsorships pulled the next day. Sure. How have you guys kind of balanced that, you know, the the attractiveness of the upside and all the positive potentials, right, with some of that very kind of serious downside risk effect? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, what I'd say first is, our platform has like a lot of built-in safety measures into it that Instagram or TikTok or you know YouTube or other platforms just don't have. So number yeah. one, right, Cameo is like pay to play. So you even to put a request in, you have to like take your credit card out and like actually like pay yeah. for it to be said. Secondly, the talent can accept or decline any given request. So I think between those two things, the vast majority of like malicious actors are probably like not getting to the point where they're putting their credit card down and putting their email in or the talent, if it does get through is declining them, right? There are certainly those instances. And I think in our case, they've been well publicized of, you know, something that looks, uh, you know, relatively benign, like slipping through and being coded message. And, you know, we very famously had this happen with Brett Favre uh, about two years ago. And or last probably I guess a year and a half ago now and and look at the end of the day right I remember uh, when that Brett Favre story happened and these white nationalists had booked him to say something that seemed to be a message supporting troops and, and in fact it was a coded you know message from a white supremacist group you know I talked to Brett about it I remember driving up to Milwaukee and I really you know he was doing an autograph signing there and really that was kind of like an armageddon moment for the company it's like if brett fell off or wrangler pulled their ads like you know suddenly that might cap the level of talent that could be on but ultimately you know what kept brett on the platform was the week before this girl had gotten married and her you know her father had passed away and one of her you know, uncles had bought a cameo from Brett Favre, who was her, her dad's favorite player, saying how proud her dad was. And, you know, here's this girl, the best moment of her life, her wedding. And the best moment of her wedding was like hearing from Brett Favre and this video got sent to him. And it was like that ability to have an impact that I think like trumps the monetary thing. Our, our talent, like the money is great, but ultimately they want to develop a stronger connection with their fans. And I think like at this point, you know, every celebrity on earth like gets trolled constantly on Instagram or gets trolled constantly on Twitter. They just understand there's bad actors out there. And, um, you know, I think like the fact that we've built this technology that in many ways has changed the world because for the first time ever, like you as a consumer can like put words in somebody else's mouth. It's a, it's a really powerful force for good in my opinion. And, and I think at this point, if somebody saw a cameo video, um, you know, being the source of some super controversial message. Like, you know, I think at this point, like people would assume, oh, maybe this person got tricked as well. And I don't think it would have the same implications as, as uh, you know, them going on Facebook Live, uh, like Antonio Brown did this weekend and just like spewing all types of crazy shit. Yeah. 
I want to I want to extend this kind of one level up. So there's again on one side you kind of have the the one-off cases, right? That you have to systematically solve for. On the on the other side, if you take kind of a macro perspective, you've obviously got pillars and, and value uh, principles on how talent engages on the platform. So you guys yep. have pillars, right? No nudity, no hate speech, no inciting violence. Yeah. Um, but you've taken the position that outside of that, you don't you know judge people on the platform, and it's a really hot topic for social platforms today, right? We've sure. seen it on the political sphere. Uh, as well as with the conversation around big tech, you know, and whether those, you know, companies should regulate political speech. What have been, I'm curious, you know, especially as the company has scaled so quickly, right? And as you've hired a lot of folks, you've added the culture very dynamically as well. Yeah. What have been the considerations in building Cameo that aren't as obvious, you know, or apparent to users? So I, what I, what I mean by that is, you know, trade-offs in privacy, censorship, censorship of speech, so on and so forth. What have been the non-obvious pieces, you know, as you guys have built the product? Yeah, so uh, probably the first like non-obvious one was that we prioritize authenticity over high quality, um, which I think is like a really, really interesting trade-off. So we want them to be raw and kind of like, you know, like not knowing where they are, right? There's, you could have imagined Cameo being, you know, we get hair and makeup and like they're coming in 1080p and like, you know, like big production value, but it's the rawness of Cameo, which makes it really special. And, you know, sometimes like that's interesting. Sometimes that's Snoop Dogg smoking a blunt or a real housewife, you know, you know, six margaritas deep, like knocking Cameos out. Like, but that's kind of the fun of it. Um, and I think at the end of the day, like, that is that person's brand. Um, you know, in a perfect world, like I don't want to be muzzling people and like, I want them to be them, right. They get a request, but like the best cameos are ones where that talent takes that request and puts it in their own words. So if there's someone that swears a lot, like that's authentic to them. Um, you know, it, it doesn't have to be like, you know, censored speech. Uh, another thing that's interesting that's a non-obvious trade-off is, you know, Cameo is really at scale trying to build the first social network not built on an ad revenue model, right? So we found this whole new way, basically, where every single piece of content has been subsidized ahead of time. So the producers are actually getting paid like per, you know, per view, which means that, you know, we do not aspire to collect data on people and sell it to advertisers. So I do think like when you're looking at most of the reasons people are mad at companies right now, it has to do with something around them stealing their data or leaking their data. And we've tried to be as data light as possible. Not that we don't collect data. We collect a ton of data on pricing, on conversion rates, on things like that. But ultimately, we do not want to be in the business of selling your data. We want to be in the business of helping you know, creators directly monetize from their fans and for fans all around the world to, to to, to enjoy this content that's been paid for by a fan for the enjoyment of all the fans. And so do you, and do you think that becomes the case or stays the case at when you're at a different level of scale, right? Do you, do you believe that that will kind of continue to be the root of the marketplace or at some point do you start to say, you know, Hey, we've collected data on folks. We know how to recommend, you know, talent to reach out to X, Y, and Z, you know, type consumer, so on and so forth. Do you, do you believe that that stays the core of the platform? Yeah, we believe that this core like B2C uh, engagement model and, and revenue model is is basically untapped, right? It's like we've sold 
500,000 cameos so far. There's eight plus billion people on earth. Uh, so for us, we believe there's so much room to run. And, you know, look, I'm not going to sit here and say that uh, we never would ever have an ad-based business, but it certainly is not on the roadmap. It certainly doesn't foster our mission of creating the most personalized and authentic fan connections on earth, right? And ultimately, like your mission and your vision need to be that North Star for you, right? And, and you know, we aim to wow people at Cameo. Like, that's literally like what we aim to do. And, you know, for us, I think um, the longer that we can continue to, to have a business that's, you know, built on the back of, you know, talent, talent fan connecting and, and bringing, you know, people closest to the people that care with them the most, you know, I think there's, you know, tremendous runway there. And, you know, I don't see us having to pivot uh, business models anytime soon. So let's talk about, you know, why, let's take it kind of a one in a, in a slightly different direction and talk about why, you know, Cameo is specifically the best company and the best platform to solve this problem. So Google, I think it was about a month ago or so, Google announced Cameos, which was uh, very original. Um, do, do you have a concern or do you, how do you think about it from the perspective of, you know, when I saw that and I was getting ready for our conversation, Stephen, what I was thinking of was kind of the Instagram stories versus the Snapchat effect, right? The traditional adage for startups is yep. you know, not to be concerned with competition. And, and I, I generally believe that. I think the only documented use cases, you know, actually where competition really comes in and has an adverse impact on a company is where distribution is just so strong and the core feature set has been able to be you know, overlaid on that already powerful distribution. Now, Google's not great at social, right? Yep. Um, but, you know, Instagram stories versus Snapchat is kind of the iconic documented case of this. So how do you, when you think of kind of Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter, all the other platforms, let's say Google out, right? And say the platforms that are actually good at social or even like a TikTok, for example, yep. right? Same exact length, right? Great distribution, and on and so forth. How do you think about, you know, how do you think about that piece? Yeah, look, I mean, I think Facebook and Instagram are going to be the 50,000 pound gorillas in the room if we were a publicly traded company, right? Like Snap was already publicly traded, I believe, when Instagram ripped off uh, Insta stories. I do think one thing that's particularly interesting about Cameo that has really become like our core DNA and unfair advantage is that we have personal relationships with like every single talent on the platform. Every talent on the platform like was like reached out to by someone on our team or like has a rep here and like they're in their phone and they FaceTime and they like, and, and at the end of the day, I just don't know if Instagram or YouTube would be that interested in like building a, a business that is as hands-on as the one that we've had to build just to get it going. Fulfillment yeah. is a really tough thing. When we started Cameo, only 30% of the percent of the videos would get requests would get fulfilled. Uh, today, that's over 90%. Why was so, that in the early days? What what drove that? I mean, you know, the, when we first launched Cameo, we literally used to email talent and say, hey, uh, here's this request. I would email them and then they would record it on their iPhone and like email back, right? Like obviously we built an app, like we've created rules, we've made requests only 250 characters. Like we've done a lot to, to get better at this, but you know, we've learned, I'd like to think we've learned a lot about, you know, what actually works and how fulfillment works and what talent is actually, get, we've got product market fit for, right? Um, yeah. If Instagram or YouTube were starting this, they'd probably, 
you know, start by getting Kim Kardashian and, you know, Drake and like the biggest people on earth. But if you were to be a 22 year old working for me on, on your first day on my talent acquisition team, I would draw a two by two, uh, you know, two by two draft that would on the X axis say willingness to do cameos and the Y axis being fame. Right. And if you could imagine the top right corner being, you know, super famous, high willingness, like, yeah, of course we want those people. If you could imagine the bottom left quadrant being, you know, not that famous, not that willing, like, okay, we don't want them on the platform. And like Instagram or YouTube would probably like have a lot of those people. Uh, The big thing for us was we preferred people in the bottom right, less famous, more willing, over the top left, more famous, less willing. And that's a really interesting dichotomy because, you know, yeah, we could price Justin Bieber or Drake at $10,000 or $100,000, but ultimately, like, how many people can kind of afford that? So I don't think, like, even today, our business model is one that um, even if Instagram or, like, YouTube or, or them were to come in, they would still have to, like, figure out how to subsidize these videos so their biggest talent would get paid enough to make it worth their while and that they were afford enough, affordable enough for the talent. Secondly, and probably more importantly, I think it comes down to a matter of business model. Um, you know, Google wasn't the only one to take our name. Like Google actually announced cameos last year. Snapchat uh, was the one that about a month ago created, you know, Google can or Snapchat cameos. So like, you know, the name, like we're seeing it pop up all over the place and, you know, look, I believe imitation is the greatest form of flattery. Uh, but ultimately, like none of these platforms have ever directly charged consumers for anything before. And that's because they make money, you know, selling all their data, right? They just make money a totally different way. Um, so I do think like that's a friction. And look, if I were Instagram, if I was Adam Mosiri, uh, Mosiri running Instagram, I would probably build the marketplace for consumer, for influencer marketing, right? You have every talent in the world and every brand in the world. Like, like, why are you letting this thing happen? Like without you, right? Like you see like hashtag ad everywhere, but like you, they could easily build that. And I think, you know, I love my business. I think that's a bigger business, right? So that's what I would build. But, you know, again, I think, um, I think at our point, like we just need to worry about ourselves and we need to worry about building great product and, and having great relationships with our customers and great relationships uh, with our talent and, and building brand awareness. And if we continue to do those things, um, you know, it's not, you're always, you know, the bigger you get, we're going to become a blip on someone, someone's radar. But, you know, even for like the big Hollywood agencies today, like there's probably endorsement deals that get signed on a daily basis at, WME or CAA that are bigger than our whole business right now. <laughs> so let's let's talk about that internal focus on yourself, right? Let's talk about internal culture and, and really growing at scale. You know, your business is, you know, a little bit less than three years old or around three years old. And you guys grew, I think you were saying last year from six people to, you know, you'll have over 150, right? Um, this year or late 2019. And I'm sure significant growth, you know, this coming year. What's been the biggest challenge or, or lessons learned? And I, I know that's a very loaded question, but biggest challenge or lessons learned of growing a, a hyperscale business. Talk about you know, what it's done um, to your focus in terms of from a product perspective. Talk about what it's you know, meant from a instilling kind of process structure, so on and so forth perspective. Very different than being a couple guys emailing talent versus you know, really building a big company. Talk, talk a little bit more about kind of that space. 
I think the most interesting uh, learning we've had is that more doesn't always equal more, right? So uh, what I mean by that, for a while, it felt like we were shipping faster when we had one engineer and you know now we have a team of 40 like on the tech side and like sometimes it feels like things are going slower. Yeah. Uh, you know, when we had three people out there recruiting talent, it felt like sometimes we were, you know, making more progress. Um, not on the talent side, I'd say the talent side, we really found a great way to blitz scale. But ultimately, I think, here's a good example. There's a, a woman named Abby Shepard who, uh, as a 19-year-old, became employee number two at Cameo. She was an intern uh, for a year doing a study abroad program. And, you know, as a 19-year-old, she, like, literally, we, you know, it was literally just me and her at one point, and we started giving her a ton, and and she's just had, uh, she every single role that we gave her, she was just able to knock out of the park. And, you know, last year, I put her in charge of our international business, right, as a 20-year-old now or 21-year-old. I think she recently... Uh, had her 21st birthday. If you if you started Cameo as a 22 year old today, it's not to say that you don't have like there's just a difference, right? There might you might be having to be an SDR for six months to like learn the skills. Where two summers ago, if you were a 19 year old intern from Duke, you were just like out there DMing and being on the phone with talent. Um, so I think that's like really interesting. Um, you know, the bigger you get, the it kind of sometimes seems like you know, the harder it is to get shit done. Um, so that's always a really interesting thing. And I think the second thing is, you know, as leaders at this point, it's like, it's just all about hiring the best possible team. Right. And when you raise a lot of money, the, it, the thing you think about first is like, shit, we got this money. We need to hire great people and like turn them into a thing. And every startup talks about like hire slow, you know, fire fast. But what inevitably happens is like you start blitzscaling and you start hiring fast and firing slow. And yeah. then you start looking at the orgs and your unit economics are like off whack and everything that was working wasn't working anymore. So I think one of the things that I would caution any startup, uh, you know, series B, especially entrepreneur is like, man, you know, make sure you're like slow down don't worry about like the you know crazy growth targets that anybody has. Like, make sure you're just coaching every person up, right? Because you know when we were blitzscaling and we were probably over hiring, we were probably under investing in coaching, right? Because yeah. our managers were so busy, you know, they're interviewing people for six hours a day, where people that came to work for us two years ago might have got to sit with me for ten hours a day, right? And like. Yeah. That's such a big difference. So, you know, I would really, um, I think, I think that's the biggest thing. It's, I always talk about at this scale, my job as CEO is to be the worst person at Cameo as quickly as possible. At every single functional position, we need to have a leader that's better than I am at whatever they do. And then I hope that my leaders have hired people better than them. Uh, when I interview people, one of the questions I ask everyone is, who's the last person you hired on your team that's better than you are? Right. And if you don't have a great answer for me, then that means either you don't know what great talent looks like. You can't recruit great talent or you know what it looks like, but you're scared to recruit it because you think you're going to take your job. Right. And all three of those answers at this point are unacceptable to me. So, like, that's a pass in the interview. Yeah. How You have, um, you know, we're, we're video conferencing and you've got Ikigai on the wall. Uh, yeah. I think it's a really interesting philosophy. What just... Tell me a little bit more about what that means to you or why, you know, why that's on the wall uh, in the company. <laughs> so it's on the wall because right before we got on the phone, uh, 
one of my 20 year old interns was, you know, coming for a one-on-one and he was just like, you know, he wanted to talk about what should he do with his life and all that. And Ikigai is a philosophy that uh, I learned about probably two years ago. And it's one that I, I think about a lot. I think it's amazing. And for those of you that don't know what it is, imagine a Venn diagram with, with four circles instead of two. And ultimately, Ikigai is like finding your life's purpose, right? Being at that sweet spot. And I truthfully believe if you're not at your Ikigai point, you cannot be world-class at your job, especially as an entrepreneur. You have to be working on something that you're good at, that the world needs, that, you know, you don't, the paid for thing like comes later, but, you know, uh, but, you know, and then something that you love to do. And if it's not all of those things, right, like you're, you're just not going to be there. And, you know, when I was at LinkedIn, um, I loved my company. I was making great money. Uh, you know, I, I had fun at my job. Um, you know, I got paid well, but at the end of the day, like there wasn't product market fit for the particular thing I was selling. I was selling sales navigator, like LinkedIn's, you know, B2B uh, prospecting tool into FinRun SEC regulated firms that couldn't even use LinkedIn because LinkedIn didn't have the necessary uh, archiving compliance technology to, to archive any messages for seven years of a FINRA SEC regulated person. So we were trying to sell a sales navigator to, to banks that didn't even allow their employees to be on LinkedIn. Right. And that was the first opportunity I had where I knew I was working on a great product. I loved the company. The culture was awesome. But every day I was banging my head against the wall and it just never was, you know, that was never going to work. And, um, and a cameo in the early days, yeah, it certainly felt like that. You know, you're talking about a fan talent marketplace when you have no talent and you had no fans, right? That was hard too, but it was the absolute conviction we had that this is something the world needed and that people would love to experience that ultimately gave me the conviction to tell people like, look, this is like joining Instagram in 2011. You're going to get zero likes a picture. And like maybe a few months from now, you're going to get two likes. And then, you know, next year you're going to get 25 likes. And then, you know, four months after that, you're going to hundred. And then now you get 27,000 likes a picture, right? Like these things take time. And, you know, you had to be that, that missionary and like just preaching the gospel of, of, you know, what was going to be. But I, I truly believe that this was an inevitable um, evolution of the talent fan experience. Stephen, this has been a this has been a really interesting conversation. I'm glad, you know, I'm so glad you could make the time, and I'm I'm really excited for folks to to hear this conversation and you know learn about Cameo if they don't know about it already and, and follow the journey. I think it's gonna be it's gonna be a lot of fun to watch from the outside. So thanks again for for making the time. Thanks for having me.